Hello, everyone, and welcome to Courageous Conversations about our schools. I'm your host, Ken Fiedernick, and if you are new to this podcast, let me say a few words about it. I invite my guests to join me in having civil conversations about current topics in education, and not just any topics, but topics on which people disagree. We talk about book banning, how race and racism should be taught, and the role schools should play when it comes to gender and sexual identity. We turn down the volume and get people to follow a few simple conversation agreements to see if they can cut through the noise, the hype, the misinformation, and really understand the issues we're talking about. Amazingly enough, when we do that, my guests are often surprised to discover that they share common ground, often more of it than they expected. Well, today I have just one guest, Stephanie Krauss. She's the author of a new book titled Whole Child, Whole Life, and Ways to Help Kids Live, Learn, and Thrive. Is this a book about something that educators often refer to these days as social emotional learning or SEL? Welcome to Courageous Conversation, Stephanie. Thanks, Ken. So glad to join you today. Okay. Well, some of you are probably thinking, why are you talking about social emotional learning. You just said this is a podcast about topics that people have heated disagreements over. Well, that would have been the case if Stephanie's book had been published a few years ago. But today, SEL has become the target of some intense criticism. It, too, has become part of the culture wars in education. In part one of this episode, Stephanie and I are going to talk about her book, and I'm going to ask her to share some insights about what educators and parents can do, uh, not just to support the academic development of children, but the development of the whole child. Then in part two, Stephanie and I will examine why a growing number of people oppose what Stephanie and I and many other SEL experts are talking about. So, Stephanie, just provide a little bit of background about you and where you live and and how you came to write a book about this topic. Thanks, Ken. So I am piping in from my basement in the St. Louis area where I am raising two school-age boys, um, one who is finishing fourth grade and the other who's finishing sixth grade. Sometimes in the summer, my family expands out to four kids and my two godchildren um, move in with us. They are working as teenagers this summer, so we're going to be a smaller house. Um, My background is in education and social work. So I like to say that I've worked from the schoolhouse to the White House, coast to coast. I've been doing national work across education and youth development, human services and workforce development for the past 10 years. But before that, I was a classroom teacher starting in pre-K and fifth grade, and I ran a high school on a technical college campus Um, That was Missouri's first and only competency-based high school uh, that was also alternative. It was for young people who were overaged and under credit. So you have experience uh, with your own children and children who were close to your family and and, and lots of times uh, in schools themselves working with... uh, with students. So so obviously a lot of background in, in working with children and thinking about education and, and doing education. Talk to our listeners about your new book, Whole Child, Whole Life, and why you wrote it. 
So Whole Child, Whole Life, 10 Ways to Help Kids Live, Learn, and Thrive is about what our young people need to be well and how they can thrive even when times are really difficult. And so the genesis of this book is that I left the education front lines, left running a school a little more than 10 years ago, and I was really in search of the answer to a question I couldn't quite figure out on the ground as a school leader, which is what do young people need to be ready for the real world, not just to graduate from high school. And every year that I was in education, teaching and leading a school, I was recognizing how often there were disconnects between what we required for students to pass a grade, pass a course, graduate, and what they actually needed for adult life and for college in the future. And so that had led to my writing my first book, Making It, What Today's Kids Need for Tomorrow's World, making it focused on the future of work and learning, focused on what do young people need to be ready in a world that's changing and volatile and uncertain. And it came out at the height of the pandemic in 2021. So I was doing a pandemic book book tour and I would, you know, beam in via Zoom to these rooms, the Brady Bunch screen full of hundreds of teachers and counselors and caregivers. And I would present on what kids needed for the future. And every single time, Ken, somebody would say something to the effect of, I see you're a social worker. I appreciate the information on what kids need for the future, but I'm worried they're not going to get there. What do they need right now? And do you have any insight into the things they need now that will also support them moving forward. And what I realized and what became Whole Child, Whole Life was that I was actually through my work and relationships connected to some of the greatest scholars and thinkers across a number of different disciplines from education to youth development, human development to longevity and flourishing, workforce development, who could all speak to pieces of the puzzle of in the same way that we think about lifelong learning, what do young people need across the long length and width of their lives in order to be well? And relevant to today's conversation, I live in a very purpley community in the middle of the country. And I was watching these incredible divisions and divides between schools and parents and other adults who were all caring for the same kids, but not coming together. And so I wanted to write a book that could be picked up by any adult who was caring for or working with a kid, whether they were in a school, in a community setting, in a faith-based setting, at home, wherever, and that it would address the common concerns that we all have and the challenges that we're seeing the kids in our life experiencing and provide kind of baseline information about what kids who are in our care, wherever that is, need in order to be healthy, in order to be whole, in order to do well. Stephanie, talk about uh, uh, or provide an example of one of those things that the teachers might help students with so that they can cope in this increasingly polarized world? 
So there are 10 whole life practices that emerged from the research that went into this book. And these are practices that support young people's learning, development, and thriving, no matter what age or stage of life they're in, and also no matter context or culture, which was really powerful, meaning it doesn't matter who a kid is, it doesn't matter where they live, it doesn't matter what they're going through. These 10 practices are always important and always have a positive impact on kids' life. So one of the practices is prioritizing mental health. And I wrote the book in an effort to be both timely and timeless. So on the timely end, we're in the midst of an incredible youth mental health crisis. And for years, there have been conversations for all of the right reasons that schools and parents are not mental health professionals. They shouldn't be mental health professionals, leave things of um, mental health challenges, mental illness, those concerns to the specialist, to the professional. But the reality is right now that the amount of mental health concerns and emotional challenges and struggles kids are having way surpass the number of professionals that we have to support them. And so there's a level of cross-training that's really crucial. Sometimes that affects what that has to do with what's happening physically with kids. So a little bit of medical and health cross-training, a little bit of mental health cross-training that um, really supports any adult in knowing is this something that I can respond to within my skill set, within my purview? And when and how do I find the right specialist and who should I look for? So in the book, I explore in this um, chapter, prioritizing mental health, both what young people need to be healthy and strong emotionally, but also just some of the basics. Do we know the red flags for when something's problematic? Do we know the difference between a mental health challenge and grief or loss? What are the different kinds of therapy? How do we even know who the specialists are, or where, where to go, or what questions to ask them? And then some really basic, I call it um, emotional hygiene practices that we can help young people with. So that's one example of the kind of thing that any adult who is working with a kid should have some cross-training in, but often, almost always, we don't actually get that education. When I was training to be a teacher, I didn't have any classes on mental health. I didn't get professional development on mental health first aid or being a first responder in that kind of way. You know, um, there's been a lot of talk recently um, in, in light of the gun violence that we see around the country that the teachers need to, to learn how to be more aware of kids who are suffering from mental health issues. And, but I, I, as an educator myself and a teacher educator, I don't recall teachers getting many opportunities to learn how to recognize the signs of mental health issues. Uh, and, and, and in addition to that, what you talked about is sort of knowing what to do, what, what they themselves can do in some cases or who to go to. So it's, it's about recognizing the signs and, and certainly signs of potential violence is, is really critical. But there are, you know, uh, suicide rates among young people are higher than they've ever been, um, all kinds of mental health issues. So I can imagine how helpful it would be for 
teachers to have a, a sense of recognizing those signs and then knowing what to do. And I like your distinction between knowing what you can do as a as a non-mental health professional just to be supportive and knowing this is a time when I need to refer them to the right person. Yeah, I mean, let's put this in context. So when I was growing up, my mom uh, was our local CPR and first aid instructor in town. And so I went with her for years and was always a part of CPR and first aid classes. I was not an EMT. Uh, Later, I would become a lifeguard, but there was something deeply empowering about knowing that I would know what to do, how to call for help, what to look for, how to make sure that somebody wasn't in, in crisis. And so the separation here that I love that I heard from you is our teachers deserve that education. I can remember the moments being in the classroom feeling very disempowered because I knew that my kids were in crisis and I didn't have the skills and supports and information to support them. And when kids spend as much time in classrooms as they do here in the United States, they're going to be growing up in our classrooms, whether we want them to or not. We can't stop life from happening inside of the room. And so we deserve as professionals and people who are charged with caring for these kids, the kind of information to do that well. Stephanie, I want to just uh, ask you a question that I've been thinking about as I read your book. And that is that when when I was young, perhaps when you were uh, younger, um, you remember that that we used to get graded on something called citizenship. And I, I don't uh, know that there are many schools around that still give grades for it. And I don't think that necessarily was a good idea to grade it, but calling attention to it, it was, it was something that I think parents hope schools would focus on. And it was really about, are my kids learning to get along with other people? They sharing and being generous and not being bullies. And this was a way for teachers to call attention to the development of of being citizens. And I'm wondering, is is your book and social emotional learning, is it is it an expanded, more robust version of what we used to call citizenship education? a good question. I haven't thought about it that way. But as you were talking, I was reminded of a a dear mentor of mine, um, Grant Wiggins, who some folks who are listening might remember was the architect of Understanding by Design with Jay McTie. And I remember talking to him um, in a bagel shop in New Jersey about school mission statements. And he was reflecting on how many schools and districts around the country Talk about citizenship as a core part of what the mission of public education and and schools is to have these ready citizens. I would say that where Whole Child, Whole Life addresses that specifically is that feeling like you are a part of community, feeling like you belong, that you have purpose, and that you have space to contribute and be a part of something bigger. These are all fundamental aspects of what the science very clearly says we need to be healthy and well. And so going back to what you were talking about with violence, we also know that in the absence of that, being isolated, being lonely, 
feeling dejected, like you aren't a part of community, that you don't belong, that participation isn't valued, that there isn't a space for you to serve. Two things happen in that case. The first is we're wired for it. And so you go find it wherever you can. And sometimes you find it in spaces that are unhealthy or even harmful. Where can you find belonging? Where can you find community? The second is that it really impedes the ability to thrive. And so what I would say is there's one whole life practice being a force for good that really specifically addresses the socio-political development of kids, that contributing back participation, intergenerational work can be deeply gratifying, deeply healing, and pretty explosive in terms of the, in a good way, the learning and development that can happen. But when it happens in the absence of being supported emotionally, so mental health, having vibrant, healthy relationships, and feeling like you belong, it can be misdirected, it can cause burnout, it can cause other pieces. So I would look at the practices, the whole life practices as a more kind of holistic wheel of what lights need to come on in any environment where kids are spending time for them to really kind of fully be alive, for the conditions to be optimal for learning and development. And um, said differently, excellent civic engagement and citizenship skill development opportunities are kind of primed places where all the lights can get turned on. Yeah. One of the reasons I started Courageous Conversations about our schools is a concern I have, and I think you share this concern because you referred to it earlier, is this increased levels of polarization in our country. And um, Peter Coleman, who's a, a professor at Columbia University, is a person who studied that phenomenon. And I actually interviewed him recently for this podcast. And here's what he says. He says, we're in the grip of a more than 50-year escalating trend of political, cultural, and geographic polarization. And it's damaging our families, friendships, neighborhoods, workplaces, and communities to agree not previously seen in our in our lifetime. And, and so when I was reading your book, I was thinking, uh, I wonder if Stephanie will address some things that schools can do to uh, sort of counteract and, and serve as an antidote to that polarization. And I, I like something that you wrote in your book in a section you call Causes and Civics with Younger Children. And you say, in addition to nurturing connections between kids and causes, we can teach them civics. Civic engagement is something people do to increase their interest in, support of, and work to solve a shared public problem. Civic engagement requires working across diverse perspectives to come up with the best solution for the context in the community. And then you go on to write, kids can work together to generate different ideas, listen to each other's opinions and perspectives, and reach consensus on solutions. You can have kids create community rules and contracts, even letting them vote on certain things. This is an entry into everyday civic life. In a time of increased polarization, it's an opportunity to help children learn to work together and live together. And that 
I, I like that because I, I think what you're talking about are opportunities that teachers have in schools to depolarize, to address the thing that Peter Coleman uh, says is um, is is posing a real threat to this country. So it makes me think of uh, two examples actually from the book, but I'll try to say them differently so that it feels fresh when folks go and read Whole Child, Whole Life. So one is a summer camp and the other is a middle school. So I'll start with the summer camp. So there's a summer camp in New Orleans called Live Oak, and they're one of the coolest summer camps I have ever heard of. They deliberately look across all of the parishes in New Orleans and through scholarship and financial assistance and recruitment, have an incredibly representative group at camp, meaning the kids at camp reflect the full demographics of New Orleans as a city. And a part of their mission is these are the future grownups who are going to run New Orleans. And what would it look like if they were in relationship with each other playing, having downtime, solving problems, going through conflict and relationship building from the time that they were really young, it breaks down so much of the othering because it could be that outside of the context of camp, they would never even meet each other. But now not only do they know each other, they have this context where they have deep relationships with kids in different parishes and parts of the city, which cultivates empathy and understanding and knowledge sharing about what happens in that community or what happens in that particular demographic. And so by the time the kids are older, they've got, you know, a decade plus of shared memories together um, and have cultivated this real sense of community and ownership for their city. And so there's also this real pride that has been cultivated in the context of camp with campfires and songs and all the things that you think of when you think about summer camp. The other thing that they do is because it's a sleepaway camp is they remove so many of the differences, cell phones and clothing and all those kinds of things, right? And, and put everybody in the woods together. So that's one. The second is Liberty Middle School um, here in my community. And they have developed, um, they were inspired by the Ron Clark Academy and by the Harry Potter books and movies, a house advisory model. And every single person in that school from the janitors to the um, teachers, to the leaders, to the students, to the teachers are all assigned to a house. And each house is kind of a school within a school and they come up with creeds and mottos and rituals and songs and dances and rules and they have competitions. And that also creates the sense of community and belonging and decision-making and being there for each other um, in a time where our, our particular community has experienced some intense political and ideological division, but they're a community and a family. And again, they're working through these really tough things. And then together, the house model also has a school-wide theme. This year's theme is Be Legendary. And there's programming around it 
I had a brother who's a social studies teacher. So this is moving away from specific civics lessons, the act of being in the neighborhood together, being in community together, and then cultivating a sense of shared ownership over space and place. It's powerful and it's such a moving experience. And then those longer term relationships of this doesn't feel so different because I grew up with this person. Um, is also a really transformative strategy. Well, Stephanie, thanks so much for sharing just a couple of examples of from your book that would, I think, help parents and teachers think about how they could uh, think beyond just the academic development of students, which is what we typically think schools are there to do, but to realize that there are opportunities to develop the whole child. And, and, and I know if we... I asked you to talk about the relationship between academics and the whole child. You could say a lot about it, but I think for now, we're going to just bring this first part of the episode to a close. And I just want to let our listeners know if you're interested in learning more about Stephanie's book, you can find Whole Child, Whole Life on Amazon and I'm sure other places. In part two of this episode, we're going to take a look at where all the pushback is coming from. Why? Some parents and even some education experts think that what Stephanie and others are promoting is a bad idea. Here's a little preview. Frederick Hess is a senior fellow of education policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute, acknowledges that SEL has a place in dealing with certain kinds of problems in schools. But in an article he wrote in 2022, he says that it is often, I quote, an excuse for a blue bubbled industry of education funders, advocates, professors, and trainers to promote faddish nonsense and ideological agendas. And here's what a parent named Jennifer McWilliams says in a YouTube video about SEL. Jennifer heads up an organization called Purple for Parents Indiana. This is what she says. Social emotional learning is the latest craze that is taking over our education across this country. Um, it's popping up everywhere and it is a curriculum that schools are adopting to shift the school culture and educate what they call the whole child. So mm -hmm. if you think, you know, mind, body, soul. Um, they assume the role of parents essentially by using brainwashing techniques and role-playing to teach children how to think and feel about life. These, uh, something that's very concerning to me is that these programs are designed to influence our children's behavior in the name of social justice. And these activities desensitize our children to accept all ideas and lifestyles as normal regardless of what family morals they may have. You will find this episode and all of our episodes of Courageous Conversations about our schools at schoolconversations.org and on your favorite podcasting platforms. Bye, everyone. <laughs>